Are you looking to find new and interesting reads? Book of the Month is a curated book subscription that offers five new and early releases monthly, mostly from debut and -and up-and-coming authors. The Book of the Month editorial team vets their books from hundreds a month, with recent notable picks including Writers and Lovers by Lily King, The Girl with the Louding Voice by Abby Dare, Dear Edward by Anne Napolitano, Long Bright River by Liz Moore, and The Water Dancer by Tanahasi Coates. And every month, you can choose up to three books. Try it today and get your first book for just $9.99 with code between the covers. Just go to bookofthemonth.com, choose your book, and enter as the code between the covers to begin your Book of the Month subscription. Today's episode is also brought to you by Lee Durkee's The Last Taxi Driver, which George Saunders calls a wild, funny, poetic fever dream that will change the way you think about America. Written by a former cabbie, The Last Taxi Driver is a darkly comic novel about a day in the life of an exhausted, middle-aged hacky about to lose his job to Uber, his girlfriend to lethargy, and his ability to stand upright to chronic back spasms. Mary Miller calls the book a frenetic, voyeuristic delight, and Kirkus adds in a starred review that it's part Dennis Johnson-ish Carnival of the Wrecked, part Nietzschean Twilight of the Gods, or Twilight of the Taxicabs. The Last Taxi Driver is available now from Tin House. Given that the world seems to be ending, coronavirus, climate doom, the upcoming elections, it is fitting that today's guest is Jenny Ophel to talk about her latest book, Weather, about how to write a narrative of the everyday when there's just too much to care about and attend to every day, let alone the apocalypse. How does one write about this and yet make it not just heartbreaking, but utterly engaging and funny and smart. Before Jenny Ophel shares her secrets, just a reminder that there's no better time than the end of the world to decide who you support. One of the benefits of becoming a supporter of Between the Covers is getting an email from me about the latest episode, with links to sources that were particularly interesting to me when I was preparing and doing the research for the show, and links to works and writers mentioned in the interview that would be worth further exploring. For instance, this week's email will include everything from links to Jenny Ophel's writings for Greenpeace, to the Dark Mountain Manifesto, to Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies for Stuck Artists. You can also get access to the bonus audio archive, where Ophel reads prose poetry by Mary Rufel as well as many other possible gifts and goodies useful for you during the end of days. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers or at tinhouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program with Jenny Ophel. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever 
come to fruition was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the author Jenny Ophel. Ophel's first book, Last Things, was the New York Times Notable Book of the Year and a finalist for the LA Times First Book Award. Her follow-up, Department of Speculation, was named a Best Book of the Year by pretty much everybody, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Boston Globe, Vogue, and on and on. Shortlisted for the Folio Prize, the Penn Faulkner, and the International Dublin Award, Department of Speculation became one of the most loved and talked about books of that year and beyond. Ophel is the recipient of a 2016 Guggenheim Fellowship. She teaches at Syracuse and at the Low Residency Program at Queen's University. She is the co-editor with Alyssa Chappelle of two anthologies of essays, The Friend Who Got Away, 20 Women's True Life Tales of Friendships That Blew Up, Burned Out, or Faded Away, and Money Changes Everything, 22 writers tackle the last taboo with tales of sudden windfalls, staggering debts, and other surprising turns of fortune. Ophel is also a writer of children's books, including 17 Things I'm Not Allowed to Do Anymore, 11 Experiments That Failed, While You Were Napping, and Sparky, which the school library journal called the best damn sloth-related picture book they'd ever read. Jenny Ophel is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel, one of the most anticipated books of the year, entitled Weather. With starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist, Ocean Vong says of weather, we are not ready nor worthy. Gia Tolentino says, no one writes about the intersection of love and existential despair like Jenny Ophel. Sheila Hetty adds, Jenny Ophel conjures entire worlds with her steady, near-pointillist technique. One feels a whole, heaving, breathing universe behind her every line. Dread, the sensation of sinking, lostness, and being cast away from any sense of safety infiltrates every interaction and private moment in this book, like ashes from the burning world she describes. Finally, Jonathan D. says, novelists don't need to dream the end of the world anymore. They need to wake up to it. Jenny Ophel is one of today's few essential voices because she writes about essential things in sentences so clipped and glittering, it's as if they are all cut from one diamond. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jenny Ophel. Thank you for having me. So one of the things I'd like to talk to you about is the question of scale and how you engage with large-scale questions while at the same time dealing with small, everyday ones. Um, but I wanted to start just with large-scale for, for a second, with Jonathan D's blurb, that novelists don't need to dream of the end of the world, they need to wake up to it. Because I feel like this is sort of an ongoing question I have as a writer and also as a, a podcast host, and I feel like I keep bringing guests on to talk about the question of narrativizing climate change and whether or not... Um, if we change our stories, that might 
be part of how we might change our consciousness or, or change our relationship to the non-human. It feels like there's a growing number of writers who are, who are working on this. Um, and some of the past Between the Covers guests have been this type of writer. I think of uh, Talia Field, Ricky Ducournay, and Ursula K. Le Guin, and Richard Powers, Max Porter, and Jeff Vandermeer, um, who all had their own strategies. So I'd like to start with maybe the origin story or the origin stories for you, how you went from Department of Speculation, which is largely um, set in the domestic and human world, and still kept that realm in weather, the domestic and the human, but also now have added this large-scale question of climate apocalypse, which is really the ultimate non-human response to what we've been doing. Well, I think maybe... On the most basic level, I, I moved out of the city into the country, and I think I started, um, instead of spending all my time kind of taking in uh, what humans said and what they looked like on the train and all of those things, different information was just coming in when I went for a walk. I'm not a particularly good noticer of non-human things, um, so it took a while for any of it to really get through. But... I was interested already in writing about what I came to think of as a sort of anticipatory dread or sorrow. And when I first started writing the next novel, I was actually writing about um, more about getting older and losing people and that sort of sense that you know that the you're going to keep walking down the you know, sort of corridor of loss and doors are going to keep opening. And I was like... What do we do when we're in that moment in life? But then I think I started to think about how climate change was one of those things that I really intellectually thought was terrifying, but I just didn't feel it at all. Nothing about me felt it. And so it felt like it went well into the anticipatory dread category, and I started reading more and more and more about it. And the more I read about it, the less I felt I couldn't write about it. But I also was just terrified I was going to write a really bad book because it seemed the ecological philosopher Timothy Morton calls it a hyper object that we can't even get our minds around. So it did seem like a, it did seem like a particularly bad thing <laughs> to make a book about. Yeah. Well, when you went down this rabbit hole of climate change research, part of what you researched was the psychology and sociology of, of why we don't engage. Mm -hmm. uh, and you essentially, you, you've said you're, you were interested in why you weren't more interested. Yeah. I love that, that um, phrasing and conundrum. But if we return to the writers um, that I mentioned just a minute ago, um, like when you mentioned the hyper object with Timothy Morton, it's something that Jeff Vandermeer engaged with or um, Talia Field engaging with, um, how most of our stories or all of our stories tend to be human centric or mm -hmm. Ricky de Cornet that our stories, um, are often human exclusive. Mm -hmm. So, um, talk to us a little bit about what, what in the research around sociology and psychology jumps out to you that informed both your investigations for weather and the writing of it around this question of why I'm not more interested. Well, I read, I read two books that were really really helpful in sort of thinking about those questions. One was a book that was um, by a British writer, George Marshall, and it was called Don't Even Think About It, Why We Won't Talk About Climate Change. And um, 
he, this is where I heard about the other book that I'm going to mention. He did this, I think, very smart thing, which is that he put all of this science in a final sort of appendix. And then he just went around and talked to different groups that were working on this or thinking about it. And he kind of figured out, for example, that the language has to be changed with each group, that you have to say stewardship if you're talking to evangelicals, that if you're talking to hunters, you have to say conservation. But in it, there was a little... um, At the time, I was still thinking of denial like actual climate change denial. And one of the things I got from this book is that there might be these kind of softer forms and that one of those softer forms was uh, thinking about it but not feeling it. And I later, in my own mind, added kind of fatalist thinking where you sort of let yourself off the hook because we're all doomed anyway. But it led me to this book, which um, I've now read several times and, and unsuccessfully tried to foist on many people called States of Denial, Looking Away from Suffering and Atrocity. And Stanley Cohen, the writer, he talks about how we, he was talking about the apartheid movement, but he was also in general just talking about our desire to look away from the trouble and to be free of trouble. And that that's a kind of twilight knowing where you know that that's outside your door, but you're not, um, you're not letting yourself think about it. Um, And later, with that sort of idea of the trouble, I found a useful corollary, which was um, Donna Haraway saying that we have to stay with the trouble, Hmm. that that's what we have to do as we think about our uh, sort of flickers of fellow feeling for other species and we have to stay with the trouble. So that was a little bit the imperative, like, what would it be like if I stayed with this trouble? And, And with regards to the Stanley Cohen book, can you talk a little bit about what innerisms are, mm. since that is one maybe mild form of denial? Mm-hmm. That phrase really caught me. He, I think he was talking about in the 1970s in Brazil that um, there's this very brutal regime, and many of the people there um, privately would say that they, of course, didn't support it. But instead, he said it became every. They coined a, of the phrase innerism because so many people became obsessed with um, talking about sports, with talking about elaborate meals, with family outings, with all any kind of pastime where you didn't have to engage with the greater world. And in that way, it was all kind of um, kept at bay. And I think that, especially in repressive regimes, um, often that's just a survival choice that people don't feel that they can... Um, that they can talk about anything without. But I became interested in like, when are there times that somebody takes that invisible thing and, and makes it visible. And one of the really cool protests I came across was in, in um, Chile at one point they sent out that everyone should bang on their pots at a certain time. Um, And then it was like this decentralized protest, but it gave everyone Hmm. sort of this hope that there were many people around that they may seem like they were doing the innerism thing, but they were actually um, wishing to speak out. I love that idea. I want to go grab my pot after this interview. (laughs) Um, I was hoping we could take this almost impossible to grasp idea, this hyper object that we are on the precipice of no return and talk about how to grapple with it as a writer, especially with regards to questions of scale 
how to employ scale in narrative scale like this, that's non-localizable because in many of the reviews of whether scale comes up, I think of the New York times profile of you with Powell Sagal. And I think of the conversation you had at the white review with Hannah Rosefield. And one of the conversations that particularly stood out to me is the discussion between Leslie Jameson and Pamela Paul in the New York times book review podcast where Jameson says that on, on the surface, Department of Speculation is a domestic novel set in Brooklyn that grapples with work-life balance and infidelity, and that this is what innumerable books are about. You could almost say it's the topic in its most broad strokes is cliche, but she talks about how you, on the other hand, have infused this story, which might seem very familiar at first, with these larger issues. And then at the same time, you've also gone granular to hold the emotional intensity of those larger issues within smaller moments. And then she goes on to talk about how the power of scale shifting in your last book is amplified in weather. You yourself have asked the question of how do we tell a story about climate change that carries the same visceral force as our own private emotional dramas. So I guess this is a long way to ask for you to talk a little bit about these questions of scale of holding the emotional intensity of large issues in smaller moments and about strategies as a storyteller that you might use to bring these questions into narrative. I think with, with both those novels and, but especially with this one, weather, um, there's often kind of a, like a jumping off point for me with, um, with department, it was really thinking about different ways that we're lonely and how loneliness can, um, there's a question very early on in um, department where she's somewhere beautiful with the person who later becomes her husband. And she looks at it and she thinks, Oh, if I lived, if I lived here, would it fix my brain? And I felt like that was a, a kind of a, a central question of that book. Like would love fix her brain? Would having a child fix her brain? Would writing a book fix her brain? Um, and of course there's something, uh, there's something missing in that question because the, the language is wrong, you know, fix, fix isn't something that happens to our emotions. Um, and I think the reason I'm so drawn, although I'm not at all a real practitioner to, to Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist thought is that I feel like, uh, they're constantly questioning how we're the terms we're putting something in and, and how that is, um, like a too mechanistic idea. So with weather, I guess I was thinking a lot about what it means to um, take care of people. Um, and so Lizzie has a you know a mother who doesn't have much money, and she has a brother who's a recovering addict. And she's a very porous person. So everything that comes in, um, she sort of feels like she's also worried about the people you know who live on her street and the people who... And I guess I was wondering what it's like if you are already taking care of lots of things, the part where when you start to learn about the crime, climate crisis or really any issues of sort of justice and inequality, you learn about them truly, the question of can I also worry about the world feels like a hard one because you, you might feel already that you there's almost nothing left of you, that it's all going to caretaking anyway. And so that was what I was that question of caretaking and what it, what it means. Um, and then what it would mean if it was also about the non-human that was really central to me. And 
both as a, both as a writer and as a person. And I felt like I wanted with the scale shifts to, you know, show the moment that she's remembering things that she would have known from her abandoned dissertation. But the next minute she's catching a fly with a cup and letting it go outside and sort of noticing the way it flies away. Mm. Um, so a lot of it is to allow in a space that seems like there would be grander thoughts, a more particular quieter moment against the, the grander backdrop and vice versa that in these moments where it seems like you are engaging with bigger philosophical questions often there to kind of build in um, either a bit of humor that undercuts that or a moment that is going in some other emotional direction. Hmm. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about Lizzie, our protagonist and, and her husband, what they do, what Mm -hmm. their, what their backgrounds are? Um, Yeah. Um, Lizzie, she was studying with a woman named Sylvia and at a certain point her, her brother was uh, really just becoming a, very, very lost in addiction. And she, she sort of dropped out to help him, um, recover. Her husband was a classics, uh, PhD who, who didn't end up getting a job in academia and now makes, uh, video games. Um, so they both, I, I know a lot of people like this and I frankly, if I hadn't stuck with writing would absolutely be in this category of someone that went to grad school and is for all intents and purposes an academic, but didn't end up with a job doing it. Um, it's often really interesting people, people that have um, this ability to range across disciplines in a way that I find conversationally very exciting. Um, but I also felt like I didn't want to write about someone where the possibilities of her life worked out exactly the way she thought they would, because I think most of us are in that situation. Many of us are not doing exactly what we thought. We live in um, a country where you may have to make a job choose a job completely on the basis of whether you can get health insurance. And so I felt like I didn't want, if there's a thread in department about sort of artistic uh, persistence and ultimately, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say triumph, but, but staying the course with that. I was also interested in like, what's it like not to do that? There's many compensatory things um, that can fill in. And with her, it's been that she's very close to the people around her. Um, But when she starts working for Sylvia, her former mentor, who has this kind of um, podcast, Helen Highwater, which is basically a Doomer podcast, she starts answering the questions and they become her subjects of inquiry too. And And then the question of what does it mean to walk through this world? Um... Am I looking away from half the things I see? Her taking the job of of answering the 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 listener responses from her former mentors, uh, climate apocalypse podcast, juxtaposed with her concerns about her recovering addict brother, who's also a a single dad and freaked out about raising his his child, feels like another like juxtaposition of scale, also mm-hmm. like a way we can maybe worry about these giant questions that the listeners present to her from the podcast, but embodied in the, in the life of a, of a, of a brother who's struggling moment to moment to raise his kid. Well, I think when we were talking earlier about, um, 
what's the difficulty of writing about climate? You know, it is the lack of embodiment. Um, and so I think that it, her brother is not only, um, an addict who's in recovery, but he's also, he's also someone who is very, since an early age, um, has been plagued by anxiety and sort of OCD kind of intrusive thoughts that go over and over again. And I was interested also in scale with that because the kind of thoughts he has are like repetitive images that he himself will hurt his child, which is a thing that actually does happen um, sometimes like postpartum OCD. And the treatment for it is sort of stunning, which is that you have to write out all of the terrible things that you think you will do um, in detail. Mm. And then you have to sometimes listen to them over and over on a tape um, as you walk around. Wow. (laughs) And if anything, I think I made that plot point a little too faint because I was worried about overloading the novel with too much darkness. Um, But it's incredibly dark. And there's moments where Lizzie is helping him with these things. There's also this, of course, the first time I ever heard about this therapy, I thought, what if someone finds the notebook that you wrote? What if someone hears that tape? You know, you're, you you can be taken taken off to prison immediately. Um, and so he's he has these things that he has to write down about scalding the baby or dropping the baby off a high height. And I felt like as I was writing it, that it was this very particular version of the kind of intrusive thoughts I think many of us have now. Everything from uh, what's going to happen with the next election? Is there some kind of tripwire that I know if we should get out to um, my child is talking about one day when um, she's a mother and maybe we're one of the first generations who the thought of having a grandchild is uh, incredibly mixed and melancholy um, because we can't imagine what that would be like. And we also, I, I imagine, like, how could I how could I be helpful? I wouldn't know anything about that world. Nothing that was from my world would be helpful to a grandchild. So that was in a weird way, the impulse for the novel too. I thought there's all these people materially prepping and that's a rabbit hole that I went down for a little bit, but mostly I was just sort of like, I want to learn to emotionally prep and spiritually prep. And that felt like something that I could put in a book or, or tell um, a loved one. Well, you mentioned not wanting to go too dark, and I'm guessing most of the listeners have read you before, but mm-hmm. for anybody who hasn't, if this is their like first encounter mm-hmm. with you is listening to the podcast, they might think your work is really somber and mm-hmm. sober, and and um, maybe it's like medicine that's good for you. But <laughs> I, the the encounter with both of your books is often one, paradoxically, of delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, the surprise, the surprise associations, the, um, the pleasure of recognition, a lot of off color humor. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking maybe this would be just a good place to hear the opening of weather. And so before we talk more about the darkness, (laughs) people can just hear the language. Well, you know, one of my, uh, sort of all time writing heroes is Dennis Johnson. And I think that, uh, the way that Jesus's son kind of isn't, incredibly funny and incredibly dark at the same time. You know, that's always been mm-hmm. a model for me. Okay. Um, I'll start with the epigraph, which is from a history of the Puritans I came across. 
Notes from a Town Meeting in Milford, Connecticut, 1640. Voted that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Voted that the earth is given to the saints. Voted that we are the saints. In the morning, the one who is mostly enlightened comes in. There are stages, and she is in the second to last, she thinks. This stage can be described only by a Japanese word. Bucket of black paint, it means. I spend some time pulling books for the doomed adjunct. He has been working on his dissertation for 11 years. I give him reams of copy paper, binder clips and pens. He is writing about a philosopher I have never heard of. He is minor, but instrumental, he told me. Minor, but instrumental. But last night, his wife put a piece of paper on the fridge. Is what you're doing right now making money, it said. The man in the shabby suit does not want his fines lowered. He is pleased to contribute to our library. The blonde girl whose nails are bitten to the quick stops by after lunch and leaves with a purse full of toilet paper. I brave a theory about vaccinations and another about late capitalism. Do you ever wish you were 30 again? Asks the lonely heart engineer. No, never, I say. I tell him that old joke about going backward. We don't serve time travelers here. A time traveler walks into the bar. On the way home, I pass the lady who sells whirling things. Sometimes, when the students are really stoned, they'll buy them. No takers today, she says. I pick out one for my son, Eli. It's blue and white, but blurs to blue in the wind. Don't forget quarters, I remember. At the bodega, Mohan gives me a roll of them. I admire his new cat, but he tells me it just wandered in. He will keep it, though because his wife no longer loves him. I wish he were a real shrink, my husband says. Then we'd be rich. My brother's late, and this after I took a car service so I wouldn't be. When I finally spot him, Henry's drenched. No coat, no umbrella. He stops at the corner, gives change to the woman in the trash bag poncho. My brother told me once that he missed drugs because they made the world stop calling to him. Fair enough, I said. We were at the supermarket. All around us, things tried to announce their true nature. But their radiance was faint, and fainter still, beneath the terrible music. I try to get him warmed up quickly. He looks good, I think, clear-eyed. The waitress flirts with him. People used to stop my mother on the street. What a waste, they'd say eyelashes like that on a boy. So now we have extra bread. I eat three pieces while my brother tells me a story about his Narcotics Anonymous meeting. A woman stood up and started ranting about antidepressants. What upset her most was that people were not disposing of them properly. They tested worms in the city sewers and found they contained high concentrations of Paxil and Prozac. When birds ate these worms... They stayed closer to home, made more elaborate nests, but appeared unmotivated to mate. But were they happier, I ask him? Did they get more done in a given day?
The window in our bedroom is open. You can see the moon if you lean out and crane your neck. The Greeks thought it was the only heavenly object similar to Earth. Plants and animals 15 times stronger than our own inhabited it. My son comes in to show me something. It looks like a pack of gum, but it's really a trick. When you try to take a piece, a metal spring snaps down on your finger. It hurts more than you think, he warns me. Ow. I tell him to look out the window. That's a waxing crescent, he says. He knows as much now about the moon as he ever will, I suspect. At his old school, they taught him a song to remember all its phases. Sometimes he'll sing it for us at supper, but only if we do not request it. The moon will be fine, I think. No one's worrying about the moon. We've been listening to Jenny Ophel read from her latest book, Weather. Taking this question of, of scale into the mechanics of, of writing itself, this book and Department of Speculation are both fragmentary, modular with standalone paragraphs with white space on either side. With regards to scale, Hannah Rosefield in the White Review asked you if you write big and then pare down. And you say that you never write big. Mm. So if only. <laughs> <laughs> so because you're not starting big and then paring down to these these paragraphs, talk to us about what you do do. The only part I write big is I take a lot of long, long notes. Um, but when I'm writing the individual parts, it's more about listening for the rhythm of the sentences to, to be right. And so um, I want I want my sentences to not sort of be placeholder sentences or sentences that are just meant to get you from one place to the next. So often just trying to have them have both a surface meaning so that I, I sort of think of it sometimes like uh, I want it to be like ice that you can skate across so that you can read if you're interested in the story itself, you can skate along on that. Um, but I also want it to, if you chose to reread it, reward that with um, other things going on beneath it. So I spend a lot of time with, with that. And then I spend a lot of time really very much on the question of scale and also on the question kind of of, of, of tone um, because it's like a, I always get the name of this wrong, that, that Pixies documentary, Quiet, Quiet, Loud. Mm. Um, I often feel like that's what I'm thinking. I feel, okay, this has this pitch, emotional pitch, and we've had a little bit of that, but but the songs I really like have those quiet parts, and then suddenly it's, you know, it's, it's really loud and um, aggressive. And so I try to I try to think of scale, too, in terms of that, in terms of, like, emotional movement. Um, most often with this character, it's with a joke that she sort of undercuts things and it's very deadpan usually. Um, but other times it's with, um, she's in a very daily moment, but she's remembering something about like the Greeks. I remember coming across that, that fact and just thinking, because that's, that's the way a lot of that ancient Greek philosophy is. It's, it's fascinating in how, um, precise it is about things where there's no way that anyone knows. But I loved the 
fact that it said that they were 15 times stronger. Mm. Not just stronger, but, right. but exactly that much. And the plants, too. And everyone, <laughs> you know, the, the animals and the plants and everyone on the moon were just, um, <laughs> you know, these, like, bruisers, big bruisers that if we went up there would take us down. Yeah. Well, when you say you, you're spending a lot of time trying to get the sentences to sound right, it makes me think of something or I make this possibly false assumption around learning about your story that, you know, you were stuck on your second novel that was going to be more traditionally told. Mm -hmm. And before you wrote Department of Speculation for years, you were working on another book. And then in order to reboot, when you abandoned your your traditionally told novel, you wrote poetry for a year. <laughs> yes. So is that connected to this in some way, to this um, honing of a sensibility around how the sentences sound? I think so. I mean, this is poetry that will it will never see the light of day. But it, I did it to sort of remember, almost to just get like a shot in the arm of language and what it can do. And actually two little um, bits of poetry of, from those years. There's one section that is a complete poem in Department, if I can find it. It's about ether. Yeah, this is this was actually one, the only thing that made it from those, that it was about a year period. And I have a friend who's a very good poet. And uh, he said, okay, that's a great idea. You should write those. And I said, should I send them to you? And he said, send them to me. I'm not going to open them for a year. Wow. And that was great. <laughs> and that was so useful. Um, can I read that? Yeah. Like, okay, so, so this is a poem. This was one of the poems I wrote Department in the years. I put it, this is the only one that oh, cool. made it in. Um, it's the beginning of chapter 39. Once ether was everywhere, the crook of an arm say, also the heavens. It slowed the movement of the stars, told the left hand where the right hand went. Then it was gone, like hysteria, like the hollow earth. The news came over the radio. There's only air now. Abandon your experiments. So, um... That's something that happens after um, the narrator of that novel discovers that her husband is having an affair. And um, I've always been fascinated with um, ether and the, the idea when, when whenever there's some kind of – I love to read sort of old science books. And the idea was something that everyone believes, including like the best minds of the day. And they're just all set like, well, whatever else is not true, like we know that there's ether that holds everything together. Now we have dark matter, right, that we don't understand that holds things together. Um, once I got really drunk with um, some friends and we started talking about dark matter this many years ago. And I was like, oh, my God, I know. I know a physicist. Like, it, like we could call him. And like, call him, call him. And so we called up this um, this guy I knew who works at the uh, Slack, the, the Stanford Linear Accelerator. And... Um, it was very charming because he's a scientist. So he was, he was, instead of being like, why are you calling me? He just happily wanted to talk about dark matter. <laughs> but um, I'm always wishing I had more, um, more people I could get on the phone when I have these questions. And, and here, instead, I tend to dive sort of deep into the old books and research of it. Hmm. Well, even though you don't pare down large volumes of prose to these, these taught, paragraphs, you do aspire to what you've called a pared down language. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about Italo Calvino's idea of the subtraction of weight. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping maybe you'd share that concept and 
Mm. And what subtraction of weight means to you with regards to writing? Um, yeah, whenever, when I first came across that phrase, it was just one of those moments of recognition uh, where you think, oh, yes, that, I, I couldn't have said it that well, but that's what, that's what I think. And for me, the weight is not, it's just, it's about, um, it's about seeing how to make something more elemental or essential. Um, and also for me, it's about, um, it's, it's kind of about being brave as a writer and not assuming that I have to put, it's funny because I, I always do sort of know everything that would be in the white spaces. Um, but I like the idea in a lot of the novels I like to read. Um, I like the idea that there's a, there's a moment where the, the reader has space to think. One of the reasons I don't like a lot of covers for fiction novels is they're too representative. Um, I would rather like not in any way imagine what a character looks like, or I'd like that to just be something that floats up when you're reading. I think that I both, as, as a novel goes on, I have more and more ideas that have to do with character and more and more ideas that have to do with how things go together. But I'm still just fundamentally pretty interested in the sentence. I mean, you know, I loved reading. That's what I just bought to read the complete stories of Gary Lutz. Mm. You know, um, yeah. I, I love I love to read that kind of thing. And one of the reasons I didn't keep writing poetry is that I realized, you know, it's taken me this many years of writing to have even a partial understanding of what a sentence can do. And I don't understand what a line can do at all. So um, it's really fun to do that, but I, I'm probably going to save that for when I have, you know, 20 years to work on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, for my last guest, Lance Olson, I was doing research mm -hmm. for that conversation, and I picked up a book called Collage in 21st Century Literature and English, Art in Crisis, which has a chapter on him. But I was also happy to discover that, that there was also a chapter on you that was comparing or you, you shared a chapter, Department of Speculation and Maggie Nelson's Bluets mm -hmm. were, were discussed together. This is uh, the Polish yeah. academic. Yeah, yeah, he just sent me this book. Oh, he did. Well, um, with Lance, we talked about, for him, the, the political implications of the form of collage. Because mm -hmm. his book takes place in Weimar Republic, Germany. And mm -hmm. that's when collage was put to political ends by the Dadaists, and there's also the implications of it being egalitarian and anti-hierarchical mm -hmm. in nature. But I wondered for you if using collage, using associative movements as well as narrative movements between these standalone paragraphs, if it had any philosophical or aesthetic underpinnings, um, if it's meant to mirror something, mm -hmm. the way it's mirroring something for him. Yes, absolutely. It's um, first I share the idea that it is that there's something interesting in it being egalitarian. That by creating paragraphs that um, you know don't have indentations and that look more or less the same as other paragraphs with the white space around them, I think it's interesting not to tip off to the reader. Oh, this is this is a very important uh, moment versus this moment um, because I. With department, it was about I had a sort of little, not quite a generative device, but like a little constraint that I made for myself at one point to try to get the weaving of things back and forth to work, which was I wanted whenever she's somewhere domestic 
um, and doing a, a clearly domestic task, that's when the philosophical would come in. And that whenever she was completely just in that realm of ideas, um, that an actual sort of moment of domesticity would occur. Um, and it was useful. I mean, I, I ended up not making it that schematic in the end, but it was a useful way to um, shift scale. And I think that the other reason I'm just just always been interested in this idea, I mean, I grew up with my parents kind of, at first kind of lackadaisical uh, Episcopalians, but then also going through a, a phase where they became very, very involved in um, churches that were much more sort of... Uh, like we'd have to go to church for like hours and hours and hours. And, um, and now they've kind of come out on the other side in, in the middle. And, but what I remember about all those years in church is just, I really liked the parts that were the teachings actually of Jesus. Um, because they're so, they are always reversing things. They're always saying the meek will inherit the earth or, and so I'm, I'm interested in, in every mystic tradition when they, when they flip, and they say this thing that you think is important is trivial or this thing that you think is mundane is sublime. And I'm always looking, trying to figure out where that is. And this form feels like it allows the reader to participate in that mystic underpinning. Hmm. And you have this ritual that you've done long-term called library roulette. And yeah. I wondered if that was in, in any way related to this um, collage uh, process. So maybe share with us a little bit about what it is and sure. whether it is related. It just means that I go to a library. Um, it's often sort of a, a library at some school where they haven't taken the books out for many years. So that has all sorts of range of things. And then the only criteria is really that I'm not allowed to, <laughs> I'm not allowed by myself to go um, into the fiction or poetry. So sort of, I can't go into any of the areas that I already, um, know a lot about what I'm looking at. And then I wander around the, I mean, really any, anything. And then I pick out books that look interesting to me and I flip through them and I see if anything catches my eye. Um, they're often written in kind of dense academic prose. So it's interesting because when, when something does come out, it, it sort of shines in a way, uh, that I think is interesting. And when, when that happens, I write it down or I read the whole book. Um, depending on how interesting it is to me at the moment. Um, so I do that. And that's partly because um, I also use like oblique strategy cards, the Brian Eno cards. I do feel like it's very easy when you're working on a project for a lot of years to um, to have your ideas kind of calcify and um, anything that will kind of make me think about it differently is for at least three quarters of the book, something I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to shake up my own ideas about what the book is, um, in the hopes that it will become something better. Um, Flannery O'Connor said that thing about, you know, if you're, when, if a writer is any good, they, they touch on something that is, is beyond themselves that they don't necessarily even understand. And that's why it, it can be just as surprising for the writer as for the reader. And so, you know, I'm always, it is a sort of, um, it is like a mystical, pursuit because I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping for like a moment of, of revelation, however small. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Jenny Ophol about her latest book, Weather. When I was trying to think of possible meanings of the collage as a form, like if the form, as Lance Olson would say, has a philosophy, uh, and I think about your last two books, 
with all these fragments. Um, I know that that uh, academic who wrote the chapter on you s- says that Department of Speculation had 46 chapters made of eight, over 800 fragments. So apparently he might might have counted them. But um, these fragments are jokes and scientific facts and proverbs and quotations, self-help advice. You could say they're juxtaposed alongside the story mm-hmm. of the of the character, but they also sort of are the story mm-hmm. at the same time. And one thing that came to mind for me was um, that it mimics living in the world of social media. Mm. But more I was thinking about how all three of your books um, are dealing with motherhood and wondering whether collage was a particularly good way to capture the fragmentary nature or the the way that interruption and interjection gets then incorporated into one's own thought um, in the, at least the early days of being a parent. I just did an event in San Francisco with my first um, editor, Ethan Nasalski, who did Last Things, and he brought that up. Um, he said, do you remember, I remember when you when you switched to that, doing that style and you said, I'm only, I only have these little bits of time to write and I'm just writing in these fragments. I don't know what, what's going to happen with it. And I'd kind of forgotten that it had been that circumstance based. Um, but I think it also allowed me to, um, I felt freer with that style. I felt, I felt like it was closer to the way I thought. Um, I felt like it had, um, it had its own dangers writing in that style, but I, I did feel sort of, um, at home with it, even if it had come from, um, I used to write before I had a child, I used to write kind of in these, um, long stretches and then really not write at all, maybe collect things. And it was all about jobs and, um, working various jobs and then eventually quitting a couple of these service jobs and like going away for a week or trying to just, um, immerse myself for a while so that I could think again. But it was a very, um, each time I broke away from the book, I would think when I went back, I have no idea what, what this is anymore. I'm not, it doesn't seem interesting to me. Mm. <laughs> so it would take a while to kind of find my way back in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I'm always just interested in using a form that, is useful to add to the emotional dimensions of the novel. So I didn't go into department of speculation thinking they're not going to have names at a certain point, but at a certain point for exactly the reason you were saying before, where I was like, Oh, such a cliche, these novels about affairs. And I thought about how, when I'm in moments that feel cliche to me as a writer, that I do often sort of spin out above myself and narrate them. And so I realized, Oh, Okay, so that's actually how it's going to need to be mm. there. And um, with whether I had this idea, I, I, I just really wanted to see if there was a way to make the prose kind of eddy and and go. And I just I kept having it's easier to make the gesture of what I wanted, but I sort of had an idea that um, also with um, one of the things with her brother with the kind of. Um, anxiety and OCD he has is that he sort of loops, he goes back around and around. Like at one point he's like, he gets this idea that he sold his soul to the devil when he was younger. And they have a, a very looping conversation about it where he keeps going, but what if I did, but what if I did? And so I was trying to, um, have a form that would 
loop in the same way as the character's thoughts. And I also felt like often when we're coming into more knowledge about something, we learn and then we go back to the way we used to think and then we maybe go a little bit forward again. Hmm. Well, I wanted to um, bring up the term that you invented in Department of Speculation, which has entered the lexicon at large, uh, Art Monster, Mm -hmm. because I felt like a the origin story of the art monster felt like one imagined bridge I had between your two books. So I was hoping maybe you could start um, because this is about, this is a question, not necessarily of motherhood, but of, of being a woman and being an artist um, and what that looks like when one becomes a mother at the same time in our culture. So tell us about the Andy Goldsworthy moment. Mm-hmm. And, and sure. then I just wanted to ask you, I, I just had some thoughts about, about, um, your experience with that in connection with weather. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm gonna have to go back and watch this documentary. Cause I later found out that his wife was after I, you know, you get these ideas about things and then you find out more information, but I think his wife was an artist too, but I saw, um, rivers and tides and, um, you know, my household is big Andrew Goldsworthy fans. And so we'd, um, seen books and various things of his land-based art. But what struck me in this movie was that he was sitting very calmly um, talking about the philosophy behind the art he did. And in the background, his children would dart in and out and you would see his wife sometimes sort of usher one of them away. And, and the part where none of it even seemed to register to him because he was talking about uh, the art that meant the most to him. And I sort of paired that with that idea of being impervious to the outside world. Um, I paired that with like the stories that we also hear of like, you know, William Faulkner and what he was like or, or various people like that. And, and that, that concern I had or wonder I had as a young writer, it's like how relentless do you have to be to be able to become this thing? Like how much do you have to cut out? How much do you have to not, um, how little of yourself do you have to give to other things is how I put it. Um, and so, I mean, the art monster thing did take on a little bit of a life of its own. Um, and then there became sort of debates about being an art monster, which I thought were strange. Um, just because it's just a thought that she had about it. She wasn't, proposing that one should or shouldn't be one. It was most that she herself had ideas about this. But it connects also, like if you, when you describe Goldsworthy as in the, he's, he's centered in the frame, he's in the foreground and he, he can be impervious partly because of his gender. Absolutely. And, um, in this society, and you were talking about how Lizzie is porous. So the very opposite of, Mm -hmm. of impervious Mm -hmm. and it does feel like in a weird way, whether it's the reverse of that image yeah. because we're not in the head of Goldsworthy. Mm-hmm. There are men in, in weather mm-hmm. and they're, um, they're good guys. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're, they're mm-hmm. not villainous, but mm-hmm. we're in the, we're in the mind of the, of Lizzie, the porous, mm-hmm. um, librarian, mm-hmm. uh, mother. Um, and it feels like she is the one in the story 
who's not just mainly trying to grapple with the day-to-day. She's she's the main one who's grappling with the day-to-day, not just her own, but her brother's Mm -hmm. fears. But she's also the main person who's grappling with this Mm large-scale issue. Mm -hmm. It's not that the others others are Mm -hmm. in more denial Mm -hmm. around this than she is. Mm -hmm. And it's no accident that her mentor, Sylvia, is um, childless and that she can sort of devote... She devotes her time to this um, completely and can do so in a sort of more pure way than Lizzie ends up feeling she can. Um, I mean, I think I think you've hit on something. I did. It did occur to me that in some ways, weather is 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 like the character in Department. If you just took the art monster part out and took out that sort of um, that kind of ambition that is um, has a very direct point that it's trying to get to. I think that in many ways, this character is, is just very close to what I'm like. I mean, it's, it's, it's a surprise to me in some ways that I have such a, it's a surprise to me that I, because it takes a long time to write my books. I sometimes am amazed that I stayed doing it um, because I don't think of myself as someone who's very disciplined or very, um, really even very habitual. Um, so I, but I did feel like there have been many points in my life where any part of thinking about making art was completely obliterated by immediate needs of, of people around me. And it actually did seem for me sort of inhuman to, to be like, I'm sorry, no, I have to go um, in my room and think some thoughts about 17th century science. Um, but you have mentioned that one of the first impulses of writing weather was to create a survival manual for your daughter. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, for a long time, I, I had the idea that it literally was going to contain a survival manual, um, that, that you could even take out. Um, I don't know how I imagined it on the run with your go bag. Um, and I, I, I worked on that so long and it just was one of those things that um, I will often wrestle with a formal idea for a really long time to see, thinking that I just need to figure it out. But I finally realized that um, the reason I couldn't figure it out was that I no longer believed that that's exactly what the book should be. And so that's why it always felt like it was... Um, uh, well, we go back to go back to the idea of, of the subtraction of weight. It felt like it would capsize the sort of boat of the book whenever I put it in. Um, so I ended up just as I as I got farther and farther into the novel. Um, you know, I used to every once in a while people, especially in LA, as it happens, people would ask me, "Oh, what's the, you know what's the book about? Tell us what it's about." And I always don't ever have a good answer for any of the books. They all sound terrible when I try to, but I, I thought for a little while, Oh, I've got a good answer for this one. I'll say it's about a librarian who becomes a climate change doomer. But that started to feel complicated to me because she doesn't really end up a doomer. If anything, she ends up thinking that, uh, she has to find the others and, and join with them. And, and that, that part of this sort of silo of dread is, is part of the problem where she's not, um, she can read and read and read about things being enmeshed or interconnected. But as long as she's still thinking of it as an individual, she doesn't really make, she doesn't go forward. 
I, th- I would love to have you read another short section, if you don't sure. mind, that has some of this um, climate advice or, mm-hmm. or prepperism in it. Sure. I've been hanging out too much at my old bar while everyone's away. It's fun to talk to people who don't know anything about me. And I spend a lot of time eavesdropping, too. It's important to be on the alert for the decisive moment, says the man next to me, who is talking to his date. I agree. The only difference is that he is talking about 20th century photography, and I'm talking about 21st century everything. Then one day, the guy I have a crush on comes in. His name is Will. Turns out he's some kind of journalist, recently back from Syria. He has an odd side gig, taking kids out for wilderness trips. No set line between lost and not lost, he tells me. And I write this down on a napkin. And then, somehow, it's four drinks later, and I'm telling him about the coming chaos. What are you afraid of, he asks me. And the answer, of course, is dentistry, humiliation, scarcity. Then he says, what are your most useful skills? People think I'm funny. I know how to tell a story in a brisk, winning way. I try not to go on too much about my discarded ambitions or how I hate hippies and the rich. But in terms of skills, he says. And I tell him, I know a few poems by heart. I I recently learned how to make a long-burning candle out of a can of tuna, oil-packed, not water. I've learned how to recognize a black walnut tree and that you can live on the inner bark of a birch tree, if need be. I know it is important to carry chewing gum at all times for post-collapse morale, and also because it suppresses the appetite, and you can supposedly fish with it, but only if it is a bright color and has sugar. Only then will a fish investigate and somehow get hooked at the end of the fishing pole. I've fashioned with a sharpened paper clip and a string and a stick. If you need to, you can use wet tobacco over a wound. Red ants can be eaten. They have a lemony taste. The Mormons ate lily bulbs, a famine food. Malcolm X and his mother would make soup out of dandelions when there wasn't enough to eat. If you don't have enough water, don't eat. Keep your mouth closed. Conserve your energy. You can last three hours without shelter, three days without water, three weeks without food, three months without hope. But don't drink your own urine. That's a myth. And don't eat snow. You have to melt it first. If you have a toothache, you can put crushed aspirin on it. All you need is to make toothpaste into baking soda, peppermint oil, and water. You can chew on a stick until it splinters into a toothbrush. He keeps touching my arm, this guy. Sometimes your heart runs away with someone, and all it takes is a bandana on a stick. When I come home, my brother is playing video games. I look at the list of prepper acronyms I printed out this morning. Good equals get out of Dodge. DTA equals don't trust anyone. FUD equals fear, uncertainty, and doubt. BSTS equals better safe than sorry. WROL equals without rule of law. YOYO equals you're on your own. An inch equals I'm never coming home. Been listening to Jenny O. Full read from Weather. I was curious when you were doing your all this research and you you know, uncover all this information from the world of preppers. Uh, did you also come across the ways in which the incredibly wealthy are preparing for the apocalypse? Uh, yeah, I sure did. And then um, I was telling everyone for a while, uh, they're all going to New Zealand. They're doing, the, and then then some. I kept trying to find more evidence about this because I'd, I'd found it in some 
like very deep dive into some head fudge people's retreat where I'd seen that, that it was a secret handshake. But then someone did a really um, deep dive article about it in the New Yorker that I, it was funny because I felt like when I'd been telling people that I had sounded crazy and um, I've never been more pleased to see, (laughs) but I did take some of it out because I thought, oh, it's already out, out in the world now as a nonfiction piece. So the, the bolt hole homes in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, presumably because it's going to be one of the more livable climates. Yes. And I mean, I, I also believe that it's, um, I think that even if it's not an acknowledged thing by these extraordinarily wealthy people, um, that are, are doing this, I, I think they're also picking New Zealand because, um, they're afraid to live in a society that isn't white middle class and up mm-hmm. for much of the population. Um, because I think that that's also what's underlying a lot of this, this move towards a sort of, um, us versus them lifeboat ethics. Um, I think, I think it, it partly is because of climate change. Um, this rise that's happening throughout the world of kind of fascist leaning politicians. Mm. Will you teach a class on, or have taught a class on unhinged narrators? And I was wanting to hear what attracts you to an unhinged narrator or what it affords you as a writer. Mm. And maybe if you have any favorite unhinged narrators too. I think I came up with that idea for a class because there was something that I was thinking about at the time that was kind of about um, how, how habit or how being actually someone who's not standing at the edge of things um, means that it's harder, it's harder to see. Um, I think the moments in my life that I felt most like an outsider were also moments where my perceptions were perhaps sharpest. And that may just be a, that may be an actual evolutionary survival thing. You may have to, when you're, when you're cut off from, from your group, you may have to, um, be more aware of what's happening around you. I, I started thinking, well, what would be kind of a name for that? Um, and unhinged we usually use for sort of actually mad narrators. And there's a few of those that I teach, but I also meant kind of unmoored. I meant like that you're not so tethered to, um, what's going on. And that was where, you know, I often teach, um, there's a couple writers that almost always end up in there, like Jean Reese with her sort of wanderers. Um, I often teach good morning, midnight. Um, I teach, um, sometimes I teach the rings of Saturn or the immigrants. Um, but I think of them as these sort of walking around novels. Um, but I, I sometimes teach, I mean, I teach Lolita, which I think is, is fully unhinged. Um, and I teach, uh, I teach Jesus' son a lot, which, um, I think where the, the outsiderness comes also from, from doing something that people often revile you for and for the sort of shame that an addict often feels about the life that they're ending up with. So it's a lot of fun. I mean, I tend to change it whenever I teach it. I tend to put new things into it. Um, but it's a, it's, it's proven to be a a sturdy umbrella. Well, I I wanted to segue from this question of unhinged narrators to the question of an unhinged writer Mm -hmm. in the sense of just wondering about if there was any sort of psychic toll Mm -hmm. 
of going down this rabbit hole. Um, oh yeah. Because when I think about Lizzie's husband, Ben, she, he's worried that Lizzie is a, becoming a crazy doomer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you tell, uh, parole and the New York times profile that for two years you were the person who ruined the dinner party. But then when I was going through a lot of the stuff that you've talked about outside of the book, so in your essay for Greenpeace, you talk about the environmentalist, Paul Gilding, who's a lecturer on sustainability, but he confesses that when he's in at conferences with other scientists that at night at the bar, their, their conversations get extremely dark and you've also mentioned uh, Paul Kingsnorth, the environmentalist who walked away, mm-hmm. um, who formed an organization called Dark Mountain. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to read the beginning of the Dark Mountain Manifesto as part of this question and then loop back to the question. But it says, Those who witness extreme social collapse at first hand seldom describe any deep revelation about the truths of human existence. What they do mention, if asked, is their surprise at how easy it is to die. The pattern of ordinary life, in which so much stays the same from one day to the next, disguises the fragility of its fabric. How many of our activities are made possible by the impression of stability that pattern gives? So long as it repeats, or varies steadily enough, we're able to plan for tomorrow as if all the things we rely on and don't think about too carefully will still be there. When the pattern is broken by civil war or natural disaster or the smaller scale tragedies that tear at its fabric, many of those activities become impossible or meaningless while simply meeting needs we once took for granted may occupy much of our lives. What war correspondents and relief workers report is not only the fragility of the fabric, but the speed with which it can unravel. As we write this, no one can say with certainty where the unraveling of the financial and commercial fabric of our economies will end. So I think about this quote, and when I think about how um, an early draft of weather was titled Learning to Die, Mm. um, and it made me wonder about the psychic toil of researching this, how you prevented yourself from becoming unhinged or how you failed to prevent yourself from becoming unhinged as you, as you researched and wrote weather in Uh, this regard. I think I did sort of become unhinged for a while by it. Um, those two quotes that you read and the Paul Gilding quote, um, I don't know if it's, if it's there, but it says something that's very particular about how, in the after hours that the scientists would, um, that the conversation would turn, it says something like to mass starvation to very, and one of the, the things that people say to me a lot is, well, people have always been afraid of the end of the world. This is no different, but it really is different that it's the scientists because they are not, it is not good as a scientist to be known as someone that is seen as, as overreacting or in any way being, um, uh, hysterical or activist or anything. These are all things that sort of often go against the scientific, um, sort of under written code. So I found that chilling. I found it chilling. I found it really early on and it's part of what made me start digging. And at a certain point I asked, um, 
a friend of mine who is an environmentalist, um, I asked, I asked her husband, who's been working in this field for a long time. And I said, what do you think about the whole thing with Paul Kingsnorth walked away? And he said he was like a, a priest who no longer believed in God. And I was incredibly surprised when my friend who works for the Center for Biodiversity just said without, there was no lead in. He didn't have any, he didn't ask me any more questions. He was like, oh yeah, yeah. A lot of us felt that way. Um, he, he said, I don't think you should have done that as this is someone who works day and night on an endangered species act. And, um, and Karan just said, oh yeah, a lot, a lot of people thought that way. And I said, since when? And he said, oh, since Copenhagen. Hmm. And I was like, God, that was years ago. And then I, and then I was wondering, because we, you know, at the time all had small children and I wanted to, I don't know, at the point I was seeking like insider knowledge. I said, but what, what do you think about what's going to happen? You know, they're so little. And, and he said, it would be good if they had some skills. And I, for a long time, this um, the section that I didn't put in, I ultimately didn't put in, was called "Some Skills," um, and that was the that was the pull out survivalist thing. Well, sort of to return to this question of like partial denial or twilight knowing, are you really unhinged if you're the terrible person at the party Maybe when not. everybody's going through their daily activities? Because I think about, right. like, for instance, in the Northwest, there are people on trial right now who all they did was close the valves on oil pipelines. Mm -hmm. They didn't do property destruction. Right. They right. didn't harm anybody. Um, are they unhinged? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, <laughs> I think th that's a really good point because I do feel like there were a couple early reviews of whether that they gave me pause because the part where it would be described as paranoia, I was thinking, that's really strange though. I mean, it's strange to say it's paranoia. Um, and I did kind of get a really interesting overview of the different kinds of denial that are left to have among people who absolutely are like, yes, climate change is real. And it's really the denial of it as, as an actual emergency, even sometimes the, the hedges that people will say when they'll talk to me about it, about the book, um, they'll say, you know, and, and possibly no longer live, life as we know it's like that's not possibly like it's a matter of when um but i'm not in the category of people i'm not a collapsitarian i don't feel like um is that a real word yeah um i don't i don't feel like we're at near human extinction um although we're certainly causing many other um creatures to go extinct i feel like uh yeah i mean the unhinged part was was the unmoored part it felt very strange to suddenly be very nervous about everything I did and thought about. And that's encapsulated in the book with the, you know, uh, young person worry, what if nothing I do matters? Old person worry, what if everything I do does? Um, and so I felt uh, my own sort of process of, of wondering what it meant to know these things and also not to know them. Occasionally a friend would be like, well, what have you learned? And I'd be like, I don't know if you really want to, I mean, I had friends of course who were way ahead of me who, who also knew this. And much of this book is, is from, you know, 10 years of conversations with the novelist Lydia Millet, who's um, been working on these issues for 30 years, but it was, uh, it was unmooring in that way. I felt more unmoored than unhinged since we're here just to go darker for a moment go for it yeah you you um 
we, we it would be a remiss to not mention that weather also is dealing with the 2016 election and you had some deliberations around whether and how to include mm-hmm. uh the election um talk to us about why it was important to include the election mm-hmm. you certainly have enough narratively you could have purely from a narrative perspective and on one level could have said, oh, well, climate change is enough. Maybe this would tip the boat. But I did. I did think about that a lot. Um, yeah, because it was already at that point, uh, you know, several years into the novel. And um, the reason I decided to include the election was that I felt like otherwise the book was going to be frozen in amber. and um, And also questions of complicity which is one of the things that Lizzie is really wrestling with. Um, I just felt like the level of questions that I had about complicity after the election was is something I thought about constantly. Um, and I thought about, I was very interested in reading about the period right, right before World War II and when people, that twilight knowing of, of sort of knowing this and sort of knowing that, and also the the desire to not know. Um, and so I just felt like I had to go towards it. I did think it was going to mean that the book was going to suck. <laughs> I was pretty sure it was going to ruin the book. You know I mean? I, I, and, and, and it did for a little while because it was, as we all know that there was that sort of, um, just nonstop kind of, uh, you know, constant outrages, constant breaking down of norms, um, I mean, the part where we all kind of discovered that our government is like based on a gentleman's handshake, <laughs> like, that was very disturbing to learn that like, oh, press conferences don't have to have them, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I, what I finally ended up doing was I was just trying to fold it into the bigger question of complicity, but I also thought it was a chance because Lizzie sort of has this antenna around listening to the distress calls of those around her. What often happens is that whoever's loudest is who she hears. And her husband is not, he's a fairly even tempered person. So he doesn't, his distress does not often register for her, but after the election, he's, he's very agitated. And, um, and I wanted to sort of also, bring him in. And I did see that a lot of people who in general did not talk this way said things about getting a gun or, or looking up citizenship here or underground, you know, my book club, we, we, we were all think thinking like, okay, what was the abortion network in the seventies that like people figured out, um, and things were, I mean, everyone was just kind of talking that way. Um, and then it receded a little bit except in activist circles, but it didn't recede for me as I was writing it. Mm. And in some ways the, the writing the novel was like a way to be accountable to myself. Thinking about this question of complicity, if you were not to include the election in the book, and then maybe looping back this thing that you pointed out about these compounds that the rich are building in New Zealand is not just because New Zealand, New Zealand might suffer less from climate change, which it probably will, mm-hmm. but also because people want to stay within a certain type of white space. Yeah. homogenous um, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you do this really interesting thing with whiteness in the book? And it reminded me of Lainey Zumas and what she did in Red Clocks. And mm. you both regularly bring up 
in passing that your characters are white. Mm-hmm. Like white becomes, whiteness becomes visible mm-hmm. um, as an identity with very few words, but it feels like the effect is large, mm-hmm. at least for me. And I was mm-hmm. curious if, if you could talk about that or if you were aware, if that's something that you're aware of um, when you're writing. I was aware of it. I, I thought that um, because uh, the school that her son goes to, um, they are, there are very few um, people identified as white in that school. And so I do think that that she is recognizing the feeling of being white in a way that most most of us who are white can. I mean, I know a lot of people have done that various identity, um, diversity kind of trainings. And one of the things they do is they, they make you have a circle where you write your different ways that you identify. And, uh, you know, it's an extremely rare person of color that doesn't identify as being that they say in the diversity trainings, but all sorts of white people, no matter how like liberal they are, just leave that right off the chart. Um, because it's like a fish not noticing water. Um, and so, I was thinking about that, and I was also, um, I mean, actually, the character that is her boss at um, the library is black. I don't know if that's ever said. I just um, felt like there was an interesting discourse that went on after the election between some of my friends who are white and some friends who are not, and it was really about, it was about surprise, whether or not they were surprised. Um, and it was also about um, a failure to accept or believe in any kind of reassuring talk. Um, they almost always knew right away how bad it was going to be, sometimes before the election, sometimes right afterwards. Mm. And um, so I wanted to kind of include also people who'd been working on any issue for a long time, whether it was prison reform, whether it was environment, they all knew right away, like, we're just about to have you know, our work just destroyed. Um, so I, I think, um, I think I thought a lot about, there's a lot about class in the book too, because she really, they're, they're getting by, but they're, if, if they lose her health insurance, they will be more or less like her mother. There's no family money or any kind of thing that would come through, I guess. And so I wanted to sort of write about that too, because sometimes there's, um, a feeling like when her mother wants to move to New York, I mean, there isn't even any way that it could be done. It just, she just can't figure out how to do it. And, and when she hears her mother is driving around, giving out socks to people who are living on the streets, you know, one of the things she thinks, which is one of the things you think if you have extended family in these circumstances is, oh, she's going to put 20 miles on her car though. Is her car going to make it? So I thought about, I guess, uh, whiteness and middle-classness and, and also, um, how middle-classness is, is pretty precarious these days, um, as everything is. Well, I wondered about that in terms of centering this book around a librarian. I mean, obviously there's the benefit you have somebody who's bookish, who's, who's has access to tons of resources. So they uh, book resources yes. so they could um, naturally be looking things up and yes. then f- filtering that through her consciousness and voice but I also was wondering about the precariousness of the public commons mm-hmm. which has been shrinking for decades so but mm-hmm. is obviously shrinking at a much f- 
faster right now under Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the library, in a way, a counterpoint to the climate? I mean, I absolutely believe it is, and I feel sometimes it's one of the few places I can go where I feel sort of heartened by by what what I observe in a in a place where people are sharing space. Um, I do think it, Lizzie is not a, an official librarian. She's um, she's like a, basically a library worker um, because she doesn't have a degree. But one of the things that is just going on in all our libraries, small town and big, is that as the other social net is just shredded, um, librarians are doing more and more. And I think that uh, whenever I'm in libraries, I see that. I see that, that some of the questions are about books people want, but other questions are about not understanding how to register to vote, help with looking for a job. Um, I sometimes spend time in the, um, when I'm between things in, I sometimes go to the Midtown Manhattan Business Library. And it is fascinating to be there because it's, as long as you don't sleep, you can be there. So there's occasional moments where somebody nods off either from exhaustion or because of some drug they're taking. And then the people who have to come over and very gently sort of wake them and resettle them. Um, it's very much a social work job as well as a, and I just think to myself in a, in a country where they put, um, they make it so the seats that you can't lie comfortably if you don't have a home and they make spikes on fences so birds can't land, all these kind of things. It's like any place where people just recognize the humanity of the people around them. Um, I mean, more than once, I've actually just sort of had tears come to my eyes at watching the way a librarian or someone works in a library works with someone who's mentally ill or works with um, a kid who's been... Sometimes kids are dropped off there after school by overwhelmed parents, and it's not really what the library is meant to be so it can be I think a, a tricky situation but I really I really see a lot of sort of quiet heroics in the in in those yeah. in those places. Well, I wanted to think about I don't know if you thought about this and I know it's a very non-literary question but about how to write a book that would prompt a reader into action. Hmm. Um because one of the inviting things about this book is I think that you approach the apocalypse in an approachable way. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's happening obliquely and we're living it. It's not a caution, mm-hmm. cautionary tale of the future. Mm-hmm. It's recognizable. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in it right now and it's the everyday living drama mm-hmm. or lack thereof of being there. And Pearl Sagal says it better than me. She said, Ophel doesn't write about the climate crisis, but from deep within it, she does not paint pictures of apocalyptic scenarios. She charts internal cartographies. But I also wondered if there was a challenge in portraying it as every day in mm-hmm. terms of getting people um, sparked into action. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, I'm going to read another thing from Leslie Jameson, which I thought was really smart too. Um, Weather understands that we can still be in love with what happens on a dying planet and that life is always many things at once, full of love, full of despair, full of slobber frogs and melting glaciers and babies who won't nap, that what happens on one scale doesn't negate the others. But democratizing these scales can also become an alibi for complacency, for allowing us to shift back into the daily, the private, the emotional, 
as crutch or buffer. Weather suggests the comfort and peril of that retreat by narrating the life of a woman for whom retreat is becoming impossible. And it feels from what I've read, like retreat has become impossible, not just for Lizzie, but also for you. Um, you've, you've said that you, you would never want to read a book about a Brooklyn mother who can't write a novel and is struggling in life work balance and that you find writing about the environment boring, not you writing about the environment, but reading, writing about the environment boring. And you're not the type of person who would use phrases like interconnectedness or mm -hmm. web of life naturally. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, you've written two novels ab about these things, about the environment, about a mm -hmm. Brooklyn mother who couldn't mm -hmm. write her novel. And similarly, you've said you aren't a joiner, mm -hmm. uh, not someone who would go to marches, who would be um, doing collective actions, and yet you are also now joining and mm -hmm. marching. A little bit of clarification of some of those things. I would say that what I have been in the past is a reluctant marcher. I've still done those things, but the part where in the middle of it, I mean, this is just a question I'm prone to also when I'm writing a book, it's like the part where I'm, I'm worried that none of it matters, um, or that it's not the right mechanism, um, is, is very, I, I get, I do worry that it's, I don't seem to have like faith in, in it, in the way that, um, some of the people I know who are really powerful activists, um, seem to understand kind of how it works and, and why partial victories matter. And, um, and that's actually just something I've been actually really trying to educate myself about because it feels like an area of complete ignorance that I have, um, and an area of received ideas that I need to examine more closely. But the other thing about writing about the environment being boring, I think that there's a way in which the, cr the climate crisis is, is alternately terrifying one moment and boring the next. And, um, especially the language of it, it's fitted very well for the sciences and social sciences and maybe less so for, for doing art, artwork with it. Um, but I do think it's the right language for what, what they're doing. So interconnectedness and web of life are not, I think they're words that work just fine but they don't feel like they have um they have that kind of clunkiness clunky like feel to them that makes it hard to put it in to a novel for me um but then it's also like web of life um led me to the idea of the mesh <laughs> which is um a similar idea and um and was a powerful idea for me. So sometimes I feel like I have to go through the words that to me have become a little flattened out and just try to find out where they were originally and how to bring them back out. But in terms of my own, my own life, I really felt very much by the end of the, this novel that, um, I needed to figure out what I could do when I could do it and, and push myself um, and I'm trying to do that. I also, I mean, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, that, um, you saying that you're not a joiner or a marcher, even if you were a reluctant joiner and marcher, mm -hmm. I think is important mm -hmm. actually, yeah. or that even when you say about, I would never want to read a book like, mm -hmm. uh, about a Brooklyn mother having trouble writing or, 
her yeah. novel, obviously as a writer, you're aware of the pitfalls of mm-hmm. the way that's been done mm-hmm. in a very general way over and mm-hmm. over again um, to be able to do it really different. But to this have an access point for you to say, I'm doing this and this is very much like the you're there's no there's no retreat as mm-hmm. Leslie Jameson says now mm-hmm. um this this notion of people who aren't comfortable joining or chanting or marching or mm-hmm. phone banking or mm-hmm. turning off valves on oil pipelines right. <laughs> um mm-hmm. maybe all those things being on the table and us confessing that we're not this isn't a natural fit is, well, is, a, is part of getting more people to come to the table. It, were, it definitely was for me. And at a certain point, you know, I sort of, uh, I think it was in a meeting where they were talking about like, oh, what if we make pencils to go along with the book? What, what, what do we put on pencils? And, um, but one of the things I said was activism for hypocrites, because I feel like that is really, um, it is, it is always something that is used to shut down people who are, trying to figure out their place. And, um, and there's reasons why people who've been working on these issues for years are frustrated by the, those who wander in. It's totally legitimate, but it does seem that at this point, the emergency is at such a high level that, you know, one of, I'm part of Extinction Rebellion now. And part of one of their slogans is everybody now. And I do feel like if everyone can figure out what it is from the place that they stand that they can that they can bear to do um for me uh it was about okay learn how to be in a group in person with other people um learn how to tolerate the the complicatedness of that process um but for other people it's going to be something completely different and uh ultimately it's just very selfish like i don't want to feel like I was, you know, a good German about this. Um, I just don't want to, I don't want to, I don't particularly know if, if everyone coming together is going to, it strikes me as our chance versus our solution. Right. Well, you have this quote in your house from Kafka in the fight between you and the world back the world. And so I was hoping maybe we could end with talking about your website, um, obligatory, note of hope.com. Mm. Um, and you have th- three sections in this website that you've created on a beloved community of people of conscious or an imagined beloved community, um, who to get involved with. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to hear more about that too. And then tips for trying times, but tell us the, tell us about this website in mm. general, like w- w- what prompted you a, to make this it was website? a little bit of a middle of the night idea. Um, and, um, it's, it's still a work in progress. But I was, when I was finishing up the novel, we, we talked earlier about how I don't have pages and pages of, um, of the story, but I do have pages and pages of, of, uh, things I collected. And one of the things I collected was stories of people of conscience. Um, and because they made me realize like people have always been in these situations where they weren't sure how to act. And of course we hear the, the most sort of, we hear the very heroic ones about people who, um, save people. But, but there's also, you know, there's a woman in Denmark who she noticed that she wanted to consume less, but that, uh, things in her house kept breaking and there was nowhere to get them fixed. And she also noticed there were a lot of 
older people who had those skills. And she just started something called the Repair Cafe where people can come for free and do um, and get their thing repaired. And I thought to myself, I think, and now it's all over the place. And I thought to myself, some people are going to um, have the temperament where they can make what will essentially be an underground railroad depending where where we are after the next election. And some people are going to do things that are about making their community that they live in um, some a place where we can imagine what it would be like to live um, in a sort of less precarious and less punishingly productive way. Um, I think that all of that's really important. And I like Extinction Rebellion because it makes these distinctions where it's like scientists for XR or the part I'm in is going to be it's writers for XR, but they also have like a whole community of people who um, what they do for work is that they clean, they clean houses, they get, and the part where that is also so, that's we need all of these different skills and abilities, and no one thing. The search for a for a, a silver bullet strikes me as as another kind of denial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of these things. So I made the website. I, t- I tried at certain points to put it, those things in the novel, um, but they had a sort of feeling in the novel where they were forced. Like there was a, a forced quality of like, don't worry, there's hopeful things too. So I just decided to make it, and formally this was interesting to me, as just a jumping off point. There's no, you don't have to go. That's why I'm, it's a website. It's after the whole book. There's a whole another page. And then if you want to go, you can go and you can see the... Tips for Trying Times, which is where I collected um, things that I myself found um, beautiful or um, that built morale, like chewing gum. Um, And then the three organizations I picked were the Sunrise Movement, because I've been very getting involved in climate work over the last few years. One of the things that's incredibly clear to me is that we really need to look to the the youth movements. Not only are they much better at... um, connecting with and understanding um, what groups have already been working on these issues, what indigenous groups, but they're also just they're They have new strategies. They have new, and they're, they're just full of rage. This is not at all. Um, it's not abstract at all to them. And it's, it can be terrifying to be, to feel, to be the old person in that room. But it's also, I mean, that's what youth is for, to say what you've done. Stop listening to these old ways. Here's the new ways. And I feel like if you have a little money but no time, then you can donate to a movement like Sunrise. Um, And that's really helpful. And then the second movement is called Transition Towns. And to me, it was the most sort of, um, I don't know, I'm about to go home and join the one that's across the river from me. Um, it started in 2009 by this guy, Rob Hopkins, and it's all these small scale, scale initiatives that individual communities do. So exactly what I was just talking about, about, um, things like repair cafe or tool libraries where you can borrow. And it does the nice work of imagining, okay, well, what, what might we want? Like all the talk about sustainability, another one of those words that I think is sort of heavy on the tongue, um, this is about humans need and love community and we don't have as robust forms of it as we used to. And transition towns, which started in England and now are 
also all over the world, I think, um, are a pretty cool way into that local organizing. Given that it's obvious that you've gone on a journey having written this book and you're in a different place as a person, do you have any inklings of how that's going to change your writing Mm. going forward or any um, ways it might change your next project? I don't, I don't know yet, I guess. Um, uh, I hope so. I mean, I always want with each book to, um, to, to go into some area that I don't know and feel nervous about going into. Um, I feel like otherwise it's just performing tricks you've learned. Um, so I think it will, you know, what's important to me in all of the novels is just to be emotionally true to, um, what I think and feel and to be sort of rigorous in the honesty of, of those things. So, um, I don't actually know what I'm going to be thinking or feeling in the next five years or so. So, um, as I, as I start to feel those things, I'll, I'll start to map it out a little bit. Well, I, I printed out two of the tips for trying times. So I was okay. thinking maybe we could end with you reading That'd them. Be great. Um, so all of the tips are numbered and, um, and then I just make on my own, I make a little imperative, but they're all at the top of it, but they're all, um, quotes from different writers that I think of as sort of when I was saying earlier about the emotional or spiritual prepping, these were things that really stuck with me. Um, tip number two, cultivate modest hopes. If protest depended on success, there would be little protest of any durability or significance. History simply affords too little evidence that anyone's individual protest is of any use. Protest that endures, I think, is moved by a hope far more modest than that of public success, namely the hope of preserving qualities in one's own heart and spirit that would be destroyed by acquiescence. And that's from Wendell Berry's What Are People For? Um, the next one is a poem by Mary Rufel called Kiss of the Sun, and I've arranged it under tip number 21, prearrange reunions. If, as they say, poetry is a sign of something among people, then let this be prearranged now between us while we are still peoples that at the end of time, which is also the end of poetry and wheat and evil and insects and love. When the entire human race gathers in the flesh, reconstituted down to the infant's tiniest fold and littlest nail, I will be standing at the edge of that fathomless crowd with an orange for you, reconstituted down to its innermost seed, protected by white thread, in case you are thirsty, which does not at this time seem like such a wild guess. And though there will be no poetry between us then, at the end of time, the geese all gone with the seas, I hope you will take it and remember on earth I did not know how to touch it. It was all so raw. And if by chance there is no edge to the crowd or anything else so that I am of it, I will take the orange and toss it as high as I can.
Thanks for being on the show today, Jenny. Thanks for having me. We're talking today to Jenny Ophel, the author of Weather. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Jenny Ofel's work can be found at jennyofel.com and also at her website that we discussed at length during the conversation, obligatorynoteofhope.com. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, for those subscribed to the bonus archive, we are adding Jenny Ofel's reading of some prose poetry by Mary Rufel. This joins bonus material by Laylee Longsoldier, Diane Williams, Vicky Now, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, Garth Greenwell, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Mm-hmm.